Good morning. So good to see you all here this morning. Uh, as Ken just mentioned, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Uh, as we get ready to start there, just a couple things. I was, in light of everything going on right now, especially this week, I was I received an email about three weeks ago um, on an email thread with some, some pastors in our area. And I got an email, one of the guys on the thread just hit reply all and asked this question, hey, what are you guys doing for the election? Do you plan on preaching an election sermon? And uh, so I just kind of watched for a few minutes to see who was going to say what. And then I replied all and said, hey, guys, uh, not planning on it because from our perspective, the church belongs to Jesus. This platform belongs to Jesus. And he's commanded us to teach and preach his word and not push our own word or our own agendas. And so, yes, we deal with things related to politics as they come up in the scripture. But our plan is to be in the Gospel of John for Election Sunday. And, uh, and so that's where we are this week. Now, that being said, I know, I am fully aware of the angst, uh, even the anxiety, maybe even fear that many of you are feeling. I know that it is running rampant in the world around us today, this, this kind of worldview that's motivated by fear, right? I'm afraid if I don't do this, this will happen. I'm afraid if this person is elected, this is gonna happen. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And we see a world just driven by fear, right? And on top of that, um, there seems to be this continual reshuffling of the deck of cards that are our values. Things that used to be important yesterday are no longer important or preeminent today. And things that used to be secondary, you know, years ago have now become primary. And so we're seeing things like political views, dividing homes, dividing churches, separating, right? The, the people of God, turning them on one another. The polarization that we see across the nation is even happening and taking place within the church. And so we know that there is a, a real dilemma, right? A real cultural dilemma happening, not just outside the walls, but inside the walls. And, and, and so as I said to the pastors on the email thread, hey, we're just going to preach through John chapter 8, and wherever we are, we are. Um, we're going to find that. The thing that Jesus has to say today, I would argue, is the most profound thing that he, is ever, that he ever says, as recorded in the Gospel of John, and it gives us a lot of help and hope for where we are today as a culture, as a society, as a church. So that being said, we're going to get right into it. Uh, as a reminder, we don't have to speculate on the gospel of John, what his motives are, and what he wants us to hear and wants us to do. John, in the gospel of John, lays it out clearly why he is writing what he is writing, why he has chosen to include the stories that he is including. And so I just want to remind us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, what those motives are and what John's aim is for us. In verse 30, now Jesus did, this is chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, we'll throw this on the screen. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's motives are clear. 
We don't have to scratch the surface very deep to figure out why John chose to include the stories that he included. He says right there, there are a lot more things that happened than I could have included here. There are a lot more stories circulating among the disciples that could have been written down, but these were written down with a specific aim in mind, that being this, that you, the reader, the hearer, would believe something very specific about Jesus, that he is in fact the Christ, that's the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, and that by believing on him, you would have life. So that sets us up then for John chapter eight, starting in verse 48. And we're, we're still in the same dialogue that we were in last week, and so we're gonna pick it up at, at a really interesting place. So the Jews answered him, verse 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now, it's a really interesting place to step into that dialogue, right? And we remember what was said last week where the Jews claimed that Abraham was their father and because Abraham was their father, God was their father and so they were good. They didn't need any extra help getting God's favor. They believed they had it because they were, they were descendants of Abraham. And so Jesus begins to question the words coming out of their mouth, the actions coming out of their life, the fruit coming out of their life, and saying, listen, if I look at your fruit, if I look what's coming out of your life, you look more like the devil, right? Why? Because he is an agent of murder. He is an agent of deceit. And if I look at the murder and the deceit coming out of your hearts, it looks to me like the devil is your father, not Abraham. So that was Jesus's indictment of the Jews last week. And so now we see what they're doing. They're trying to flip the script on him. Don't accuse us of being in cahoots with the devil. You got You're the one who has a demon. You're the one who is in cahoots with the devil. You're the one who looks like the devil, which is interesting because this is the MO of every human being who has ever lived, who has ever been guilty of breaking one of God's laws. What do I mean? We shift the blame. And when we can't, first, first is I'm gonna find somebody else to pin it on, right? So we look around us, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault. And if we can't find somebody, then we turn the script on God and say, well, then it's your fault. Right? This, is the, this has been the MO since the beginning. You go all the way back to the original sin, the first recorded sin, Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve disobey God. God calls them into account. What does Adam say? This is verse 12 of Genesis three. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The context is God is saying, Adam, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And rather than standing up going, you know what, God, I disobeyed you. It's me. I'm guilty. What do you do? It's not my fault. It's her fault. And actually, if you think about it, God, it's your fault because you gave me her. So it's not my fault. If it's anybody's fault, God, it's got to be you. And so since the beginning, in our sin, in our disobedience uh, towards God, we continually try to flip the script and make it his fault. You're the one who's being unreasonable. And we see that in the culture around us today. First of all, if I feel guilty, if, if I feel like I'm being convicted of sin, I've got to blame it on somebody else. Don't you judge me. Jesus is loving. 
Jesus is, right, and we make up this idea of Jesus, and then if that doesn't work, then we just blame it on God all together. Well, you're the one that made me this way. You're the one that allowed these circumstances to happen. You gave me this mother. You gave me this father. You gave me these friends. You gave me this body that's, you know, and we just blame everything where? On God. And so what's happening here is they, they flip the, try to flip the script on Jesus is what we try to do even in the world today. Let's just make everything God's fault. Then we don't have to take the blame for anything. Well, obviously this doesn't work. Jesus does not play into their human games. So now what's gonna happen in verse 50, he's gonna start talking about his own identity, who he is. And there's gonna emerge a debate about who Jesus is. Verse 50, he says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Why do we know this? Because Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, we, the debate is, who is Jesus? Who are you? And in the midst of this debate, Jesus inserts really a, a promise of hope, right? What does he say there in verse 51? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So rather than engaging in this debate about who has the demon and who doesn't, whose fault this is and who's not, well, simply Jesus says, listen, I got hope for you. Let me just speak a word of hope in the midst of this debate in your mind about who I am. Here's my word of hope. If you keep my words, you will not taste the sting of death. Though you physically will die, you will live forever in my presence. Eternal life is promised to you if you believe in me, if you keep my word. And so Jesus inserts this beautiful promise of hope here in the midst, but they're not, they're not buying, are they? They're not listening to what he's saying. They're taking what he's saying and they're twisting it. What? What do you mean that we're not gonna taste death? Are you kidding me? And so they start comparing Jesus to Abraham, right? How can you make that kind of promise, Jesus? If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham, our father, who died? And so Jesus now is being compared to one of their esteemed patriarchs, one of their cultural icons, one of their religious heroes, right? So there's this scale of right, honorable people amongst the Jews, and Abraham's at the top, right? And with him are the prophets. And so essentially they're saying, Gee, are, you, are you saying like, it's been thousands of years since Abraham died, how can you say, right, how can you give this promise of eternal life? Are you greater than Abraham? Are you more powerful? Can you, can you deliver a promise to us that Abraham couldn't deliver? Can you, can you deliver a promise to us that the prophets couldn't deliver? And then they land on what I believe to be the most important question a human being can ask. I know that's a big statement. I really do. But I believe this is the most important, critical 
the largest, the biggest, the, the question that has the greatest potential impact for you that a person can ask, who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? Answer us. Who are you? Now, Jesus himself wants us to answer this question. As a matter of fact, there's a really important conversation recorded in Matthew 16 between Jesus and the 12. Like, this is such an important question. Jesus grabs the 12 uh, in a private moment, and he starts asking about who do the people say that he is. This is recorded in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Listen to the answer. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the disciples answered Jesus on the human scale. People are comparing you to some of their greatest heroes. Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets. Like you're being compared to some really honorable, respectable, admired heroes in our faith. And then what does Jesus do? He turns to the 12, verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter is going to reply, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that thing that John wants us to believe about Jesus, Jesus himself in Matthew 16 is saying, listen, disciples, the most important question I need you to answer is who am I? If you can't answer that, no need going forward because I'm gonna give you commands. I'm gonna give you a mission. I'm gonna teach you about eternity. And if you don't start with this foundational belief of who I am, nothing else I say matters. It might as well be a self-help book on the used bookshelf. If I am not, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 54, Jesus is going to continue. Now, keep in mind, if you will, how you and I typically engage in debates, especially discussions or debates about our identity, who we are. We're pretty protective of that, aren't we? Don't accuse me of something I didn't do, right? Don't accuse my kids of something they didn't do. We get real defensive over identity. And we typically, right, we measure our identity and our character based on other people. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm more honest than so-and-so. And so we have this human scale of character, right, that we measure ourselves by. I want you to keep that in mind as Jesus engages in this conversation about who he is and how he ranks among Abraham and the prophets. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. We won't spend a lot of time here. Essentially, he's saying, it's not my job to glorify myself to you. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So if you believe that, listen to him. If you believe that, look at what he's pointing at because he's pointing at me. It's not my job to, to esteem myself in your presence, to glorify myself, to argue with you about my identity and to prove that I am above Abraham and the prophets. My father in heaven is gonna do that. 
Problem is you're not listening to him. Verse 55, but you have not known him. Ouch. Can you know a lot about God without knowing him? Evidently you can, because these guys were like experts in the word of God. They knew a ton about God, and yet Jesus is saying what? You do not know him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Verse 56, we're going to spend some time on. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Look at the Jews' response to that. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now what Jesus is saying here, what he's referring to is huge. If you ever wonder, how do the people, the characters of the Old Testament, find their way into heaven? How are they saved if Jesus hasn't died, resurrected, and ascended back to the Father? If that hasn't happened yet, how is Abraham and Sarah, how are they saved? How is Elijah saved? How is Moses saved? How is Isaac saved? How, is, how are the people of the Old Testament saved? So we talked about this a little bit last week. Right, The Apostle Paul really tells us in Galatians, he says, here's how they were saved. They believed the gospel. Well, wait a second. I thought the gospel wasn't preached until the New Testament. How did they believe a gospel if Jesus hadn't come yet? And so Paul says, here's how. Remember how God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? He said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Awesome. I'm going to turn your family, your lineage that doesn't exist yet into this great nation. I'm going to bless them. Awesome. Sign me up. Oh, and here it is. Through them, through your lineage, through this nation, I'm going to bless all other nations. Whoa, that's huge. Paul says, in that moment, God was preaching the gospel beforehand. Now, did Abraham have in his mind a detailed vision of what the Messiah would look like, how he would suffer, how he would walk on water, how he would feed the multitudes, how he would cast out demons, how he would raise the dead, how he would suffer and die and resurrect? I don't think so. But Abraham knew the promise that God had made, and that promise was pointing where? To Jesus. And so all throughout your Old Testament, as God reiterates the promise, he's reiterating the promise of the gospel. And so the men and women of the Old Testament, as they believe the promises of God that are pointing to Christ, they're believing the gospel. And for this crowd, they're asking this question. You're not even 50 years old, Jesus. He was probably 31 or 32 right here. Are you telling me that you've seen Abraham? I mean, Abraham existed thousands of years ago. How can you say that our father Abraham rejoiced that he would see your day and that he saw it and he was glad? Because even though Abraham, looking from thousands of years backwards on the timeline, looking forward to this gospel promise, he couldn't see all the details, but he rejoiced in what he could see. He found joy in what he could see. He trusted God for those promises. Think about that. Did Abraham still endure hardship? Yeah. But he endured it with joy. Why? Because he believed in a promise that transcended his circumstances, transcended his difficulties. Verse 
Verse 58, Jesus said to them, now, I want to set us up for this. What I would propose to you to be the most important, most significant, most powerful thing that Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if the tense of that sentence catches you off guard and sounds strange, it's supposed to. Because what we would expect to hear Jesus say from a human perspective, before Abraham was, I was. That would be a big statement, right? Meaning what? I existed before Abraham. Wherever Abraham was born and entered his life journey on the earth, I existed before that. But that's not what he says. He's not using past tense. He's using present tense. Before Abraham was, I am. Now let me help you kind of understand what Jesus is referring to here about himself. There are two categories of characteristics that we ascribe to God. Some are referred to as communicable, okay? Communicable means they are characteristics and traits of God that you can also see in his creation. You could go to the fruit of the Spirit, right? God is loving, but we can also see that characteristic in God's people. Not at the same quality, same quantity, but you can see a reflection of that, right? God is faithful, so you would hope to see that characteristic reflected in his people in their faithfulness. As people of God, we're to reflect his wisdom, his gentleness, his kindness, his compassion. And anytime we actively participate in those attributes of God, we're participating in communicable attributes. Not the same quality and quantity as God, but we're reflecting his nature and his character and his identity. We are image bearers in that way. But there are a group of characteristics that are incommunicable. They're reserved for God and God alone. You and I cannot reflect these characteristics. See, what we would expect from a human perspective is for Jesus to explain why he is greater than Abraham from hum in human terms. Yes, I know Abraham was wise, but I'm wiser. Yes, we know Abraham was faithful, but I'm more faithful. Right, that's how you and I engage right, in discussions and debates. That's not what he says. He doesn't even mess with the list of characteristics that you and I share with God. He goes straight to what? The incommunicable ones. So what are the characteristics and traits of God that belong to him and him alone? We could probably go on for hours. Listing, thinking, talking. I'll give you a few. independent. Now, before you start building an argument about your independence, you are a dependent being. I know we don't like to think about that as American citizens. We like to think of ourselves as independent. We're an independent nation. We got here on our own. We protect ourselves. We've made ourselves. We are independent people, yet we are very dependent. Have you ever been at the bedside of somebody who is drawing their last breath of air and witnessed the frailty of human life? If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We are dependent people. We are. 
We depend on oxygen and water and food and shelter and temperature and this amazing ecosystem that God has created for us. Just shifting a little bit and the whole thing doesn't work. He has created this this amazing world and creation and ecosystem that's very fragile and he's placed us in it and we haven't died yet. We haven't been wiped off the face of the earth. The coronavirus is not the first thing to try to take us out. And yet what? We have prevailed. We are dependent people. And if anything, I would argue as a culture, we are more dependent now in 2020 than we've ever been. Like, we freak out when the store runs out of toilet paper. Your great-grandfather would look at you like, what are you doing? Go poo outside. We can't even go to the bathroom outside anymore as a culture. You see how dependent we've become? God is the only being who is truly independent. He doesn't need anything from us. Yet he chooses to be in relationship with us. He's independent. He's infinite. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. You cannot know nor understand who God is apart from him revealing himself to you. You can't put him under a microscope. You can't put him in a test tube. You can't put him in a pie chart. You cannot figure out who God is apart from him and his mercy revealing himself to you. In a small way, this is what I tell my boys about our dog. We have a six-month-old Anatolian shepherd. She's a great dog. She's still a puppy. She obeys about 13% of the time. And, and, and so my boy's like, why won't she listen to me? She was just sitting over there. Now she won't sit over here. And like, boys, listen, she does not understand the words coming out of your mouth. The only thing she can comprehend is if I hear this sound and do this, I get this. Or if I hear this sound and I don't do that, I don't get that thing. Right? And that's, that's her world right now. A, that's about the extent of what she can understand about human, human brains. Now, apply that times like a billion Right? And that's who God is to us. You cannot comprehend his ways apart from him revealing that to us. He is preeminent. He is sovereign. He is transcendent. There's no one like him. He is majestic. He is omnipresent everywhere all the time. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Nothing catches him off guard or surprises him. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So as Jesus makes this reference to himself, he's referring to what? The characteristics of God that God alone possesses. He's placing, he's taking himself off the chart of human character and who measures up against whom, and he's saying, listen, I'm on a different chart than Abraham. You're trying to figure out how I rank with Abraham and the prophets. I'm not even on their chart. I am set apart. I am other than. Here's, you want to know who I am? I am. Before Abraham even was, I am. What a powerful identity marker given to Jesus. That is the identity marker that associates him as God. Do you remember what John's goal is in his gospel? That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. Now, how does this impact 
our lives practically on an everyday basis? How does this impact the world that we're in today? First of all, if this is who Jesus is, he demands our allegiance. First and foremost. Remember how I talked earlier about reshuffling the deck on values? What matters, who's important, this, this, and this? If this is true, then what Jesus is saying is don't put me on the same scale that you put Trump and Biden on. I'm not on their scale. Before they were, I am. Don't first of all pledge allegiance to the American flag in the United States of America. First and foremost, pledge your allegiance to me. If this is who Jesus is, he is above all other important people in this world. He is other than. His laws are above our laws. We have a decent set of laws in our land, most of which, I think I could use the word most, most of which still are derived from God's law as is expressed in his word. Still against the law to murder. Where do we get that from? God said, thou shalt not murder. I'm not saying every law in our land is is a reflection of God's law, but we are a nation that was in some ways founded upon biblical principles. And yet his law is always above our law. His authority is above all other authority. His wisdom is above all other wisdom. He transcends our situations, our elections, our chaos, our political, political polarization. He trans- transcends all of that. All of it. Listen. You may be familiar with a Bible verse where God says, be holy as I am holy. Have you heard that Bible verse before? The word holy means to be set apart. So Jesus just set himself apart, right? From Abraham and the prophets. I'm not even, they're not even on my scale. I am. In the same way, God says, if you are truly gonna be his people, he's calling you to be set apart, to be other than, to be different from to be set apart from the culture around you. How do we know what that's supposed to look like? We read his word. If his authority is above all other authority, then we have to listen to his commands. Christ followers, Jesus has commanded you to love your... Yeah, that's what you thought I was gonna say. Enemies. See, it's easy to love your neighbors when you put it in that equation. He did command you to love your neighbors. But did you know he also commanded you to love your enemies? Christ's followers, if we're gonna obey that command, we're gonna look different in the world today. It won't be that hard to be set apart. Let's just start with social media. Are you doing a good job of loving your enemies on social media? Whether you comment or not, (laughs) right? Like there's an example of how we're supposed to be set apart. We can love people with whom we disagree with. There's just one example. When Jesus and his kingdom are of highest value to us, we are truly at that moment his disciples. If Jesus and his kingdom are not our highest value, then we aren't truly his disciples. 
Listen, Jesus is more than a good luck charm you put around your neck to keep the vampires away, to keep the bad things away. He's your king, and you belong to his kingdom. Listen to a few Bible verses. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Those are the saints from all times, all nationalities across the entire human spectrum of time. Whether you're Jew or Greek or American or Spaniard or Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about how Abraham, as he, as he left his home and he went following after God in this promise that he wasn't actually looking for a new plot of dirt, a new plot of land. Look at how the author of Hebrews describes Abraham's journey. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, it sounds like they were just looking for this land flowing with milk and honey, this geographical place called Jerusalem. It's what it sounds like they were looking for. And as long as they were wandering around, they were foreigners until they found that nice piece of property. But look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is what? God. He was looking for a city that was set apart, other than, something better than what he could find, or he could fashion, or he could build. Look at verse 13. Speaking not just of Abraham, but all of the men and women of faith in the Old Testament, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised and having seen them and greeted them from afar. What were they greeting from afar? The gospel. That's what Abraham was greeting from, a, from afar. He couldn't see all the details of it, but he's like, I'm rejoicing in that promise. What God is promising is good. I'm rejoicing in that. I'm greeting it from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Christians, you are strangers in a foreign land. Now, here's the good news. God's people flourish in foreign lands. God's people grow and live out his mission among what? Enemies. God's people flourish and grow and accomplish his mission on the earth, even in slavery. So no matter what happens this Tuesday, you're his. He is your king, and we will flourish. We will flourish. Now, this is in no way a call or an invitation to disengage from voting, being aware of what's going on. Be aware, be engaged, be involved, 
ask hard questions, have discussions with people, but do so as agents of hope. The same way that God is set apart, Christ's follower, you're called to be set apart. And it's not that hard anymore. Be an agent of hope this week. How do you do that? Don't hang your hope on who gets elected. Like so many of us are fearful of what's going to happen if our person doesn't get elected or our party doesn't take over the White House. That is not a person of hope. Be engaged. Vote according to your convictions. Understand how God's word informs those decisions. But don't hang your hope on a man. I promise, I'll make you a promise right now. If your person gets elected and their party takes over, listen, you will be disappointed. Maybe not as disappointed, but you will be let down. Men and women make horrible saviors. And I'm going to flip it. If the person you're hoping gets elected or the party that you lean towards doesn't make its way into the White House, have hope. Have courage. Be people of courage. Why? Because the president of the United States is not your king. Jesus is. This is what he is saying. He's saying to the Jews, don't put your hope in Abraham. Don't put your hope in the prophets. They're just messengers. They can't overcome the grave. They can't give you eternal life. Well, then who can? Jesus steps up and says what? I am. That's where our hope is, church. That's where our hope is. What does it look like to trust in God? Well, we know what the opposite looks like. Did you know that in the Gospel of John, I went back and read this week five times. There are five occurrences in the Gospel of John. One of them happened in chapter seven. The rest are still coming where there were men and women who wanted to believe in Jesus, but because they were afraid of what man would think of them, they didn't confess that publicly. Like they are on the brink of being Christ followers. That's him, that's the Messiah, but they let their fear of man, their fear of what was going on in the world, cause them to shrink back. Fear-driven. If anybody on the face of the earth has the ability to not be fear-driven, it's us. And we just sang a song. Listen to the lyrics you just sang. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. What does that mean? What's well, a reference to the tools of power of man? At this point in human history, the most powerful tools they had were what? Bows, spears, catapults, chariots. Oh yeah? Well, we believe in a God who burns that stuff up with fire. Oh God of Jacob, fierce and great, You lift your voice to speak. The earth, it bows, and all the mountains move into the sea. Oh, Lord, you know the hearts of men, and yet you let them live. Oh, God, who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us and win. That is an appeal to a God who is transcendent, other than. Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is still in control. What's happening right now in our country looks a lot like what we would expect to be happening somewhere else, doesn't it? Listen. 
though the nations rage, listen, I will be an agent of hope. I will be an agent of courage. Why? Because my God is in control. He holds this week in his hands. Be engaged in what is happening in the world as an agent of Christ, an agent of hope, an agent of courage. One who says my ultimate authority is God and him alone. Defend the Constitution. Vote. In submission to what? Your obedience to God's commands. I want to leave you with a couple references in Scripture about our fear where we put our trust, Psalm 118, 6 through 9. It's a powerful, beautiful psalm. I encourage you to go read it. There's just a few verses I want to read this morning. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What do you do with your angst? What do you do with that anxiety, that fear? You bring it to the Lord, you take refuge in him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. This is from your savior, Jesus. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Some of us need to hear this today. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's a big deal. The smallest detail of God's creation is in his control. Verse 30, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered, so therefore what? Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows, a million sparrows, a billion sparrows, all the sparrows who had ever existed in God's creation, you are worth more. And if God cares for a little sparrow that's sold for two pennies, he cares about you. So this week, be an agent of courage. Be an agent of hope. Be an agent of obedience to God and his law. As you interact with people you disagree with, be set apart. Be different from what you see happening out there. Just a couple of questions for you to think about. The most important question that you could answer, I believe, the most important question you could answer for all time is who is Jesus? Just like with the disciples, just like with the Jews here in John 8, if you do not believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, then nothing else he says matters. It might as well be a self-help book on a used bookstore shelf. He's either the I am or he's not. And so if you're here today, you've not answered that critical question, I'm gonna encourage you to take that step of faith today and believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is. John says that by believing in him, you will have eternal life. That's a big deal. Maybe for you today is just a recalibration of like principles and values and what matters. Maybe you've been driven or given into angst and you're feeling the anxiety of the culture around you and today you needed to just sing those words, though the nations rage, my God is in control. Maybe that's what, that's what you needed to do to just recalibrate your allegiance to Christ and him alone. 
Do we want our nation to succeed and to turn around? Yes, we want those things. But we shall flourish regardless. We shall. And so maybe for you today is just a day to recalibrate those priorities and those values. Set the example for the world. Maybe God's calling you to some other next step. Maybe it's baptism or getting more connected with the church. Whatever it is, listen, if you're online watching, so thankful that you join us this morning. For all you here in person, thank you for joining us. God is moving. He's calling us forward in this journey of faith to next steps. Whatever that is, if you want to come grab a pastor, if you're here in person, if you're at home, you want to email us, you want to get on the app and communicate with us, you want to grab the next steps card, like whatever works for you, just encourage you to do that today. Take that next step. So I'm going to pray. And our worship team is going to come up, and we're going to sing a song together called Yes, I Will. That's a statement of commitment, <laughs> right? Let's not sing that flippantly today. Could we together as God's people stand with one voice and say, yes, I will, God. I will obey your commands. I will live for you. I will live a life set apart. I will be other than. Let's pray together, and the worship team will lead us. God, thank you for this powerful reminder from the Gospel of John. Father, in a world that seems more like chaos at some times than it does order, in a world that seems to be more about the fear of man than the fear of God, in a world that seems to be based and driven more on the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God, Father, we, we trust in you. You are our anchor in the storm. You are the firm foundation upon which our lives are built. So Father, this morning, would you recalibrate our hearts? Lord Jesus, would you be our first love? Would you be our final authority? Would you be our king whose commands we find joy in obeying? Father, we know that as a nation, our culture the values and principles of our culture have shifted over time. Would you give us eyes to see where the things that we experience in our everyday lives, in the world that we live in, don't align with your word? And would you give us the courage, God, <laughs> to stand with you? Would you give us the courage just to, to be set apart, God, that we could be agents of hope this week? Father, we trust you even without knowing the outcome of elections or the coronavirus or all the other things going on in our world today, without knowing the full outcome, we can say this, we trust in you. So Lord Jesus, we pray now your Holy Spirit would move through this room, work in our hearts and minds, recalibrate us, adjust our thinking, help us to see things that we can't see on our own. We pray it all in your precious name. Amen.